Sleuth Hounds. Have you ever considered creating your own podcast? Have you been inspired by listening to some of your favorites and thought, I'd love to try this out on my own? Whether it's a true crime podcast like ours, a motivational podcast, or maybe one filled with tips and strategies for those interested in the same activities you are. When Maggie and I first decided to start our podcast, we knew absolutely nothing about what podcasting would entail. But when we found that the platform Buzzsprout was one for which we didn't need any special equipment, just a computer microphone, some quiet space, and each other, we knew that this was the way to go. It is intuitive to use, fun to play around with, and so helpful in getting analytical data about our number of downloads to track trends and from where our listeners hail. Best yet, Buzzsprout is affordable, even by our teacher salary standards. Buzzsprout will get your podcast listed on every major podcasting platform. So, what are you waiting for? Fulfill that dream of yours and start today. If you use our Coffee and Cases referral code, 709-643, linked on Facebook and in our show notes, not only will you help support our show, but you will receive a $20 Amazon gift card after your second month on a paid plan. It's that easy. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Now, it's time for the world to hear what you have to say. In just a few short days, the city of Augusta, Georgia will be flooded with people flying and driving in from across the country and from across the globe to watch a yearly event that draws approximately 40 to 50,000 spectators. That is, in addition to the ones watching on television. That event is the Masters Golf Tournament. Granted, because of the pandemic, this year's attendance will be limited, but in 1990, when our story this week took place, thousands of people would be in attendance to watch Nick Faldo don the green champion's jacket for the second time. It was all over the news. Noticeably absent from news coverage was the disappearance Maggie and I will cover this week. As the only case of missing twins that remains unsolved in America, you would think that you would be familiar with their story. You would think that you would recognize their names. But I'd wager a bet that you've never heard of them. And even in 1990, in the weeks following their disappearance, those thousands who would flood into Augusta would be ignorant of any knowledge of the two girls who had seemingly just disappeared on March 18, 1990. Imagine the outrage of a family wanting answers, only to realize that it seemed as though coverage of a tournament outweighed the importance of finding their daughters, their sisters. And not only that, but no one seemed to care about finding them, even the police. Imagine the further outrage and confusion when, Three years later, they reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, only to hear that the twins' case had been closed because the girls had been found, placed into foster care, but you, as their mother, had received no phone call, had no happy reunion, had been suffering all along. And all of this, only to find out that the case had been closed? 
based upon a lie. The girls had not been found. And how many days had now passed since anyone outside of the family had even been searching? Imagine the feeling of being inside of a dark room. You can't see anything, especially a means of escape through the grief of your loneliness. You can't hear anything either, as if you're stuck in a void. But there you stand, screaming, continually into the deepening shadows of darkness. Imagine that hopelessness, and you might have some understanding of what this family has felt all these years. This is the story of Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast and to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Before I begin our case this week, I wanted to let you know that the Millbrook Twins case is on the Crime Door app. Ooh! I know. So I urge you, Sleuth Hounds, after you listen to our episode, go there and check out the other resources. There are pictures, there are news articles, YouTube videos, other podcast episodes, all at your fingertips all free content provided by the Crime Door app creators, so make sure you check it out. And Maggie, this is one of those cases that podcast coverage has actually helped in many ways. So again, that gives me hope that maybe our podcast can help one of the cases that we've covered. Yeah, for sure. While there's still no closure in this case, at least the coverage has led to other potential theories and has drawn more attention, but that's still not enough. There can't be enough until there's closure. So even though this case that I'm covering this week has been covered on a couple of larger podcasts, it's still a case that I was wholly unfamiliar with. And so I knew I needed to cover it. Have you ever heard those names, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook? No, I actually hadn't, but I'm really intrigued just based off um, your intro to kind of hear what's going on with this case, but I've never heard of them before. So, yeah. So, and, you know, I obviously it's on the Crime Door app, and I saw that some other podcasts had covered it, but you would think that we would have heard of them. Mm hmm. 
Well, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook, as I mentioned in the introduction, are twins, more specifically fraternal twins, which means they came from different eggs and in all other respects, other than sharing a womb and a birthday, are like any other siblings because they only share part of their genetic code. But fraternal or not, twins are known to have a special bond. And even though the girls had a close relationship with their other siblings, and they came from a large family, Maggie, with eight other siblings. Wow. So there's 10 of them total. Yeah, 10 of them total. And the twins fell somewhere in the middle chronologically. So they're not the oldest. They're not the youngest. Mm Mm-hmm. But even though they were close to all their brothers and sisters, they had that twin bond with each other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever taught twin. I've taught a lot of twins over the years, actually, and a few sets of triplets. I've only taught, well, triplets. You have them now. I had them as freshmen. Yes. You have them now. Mm-hmm. And then I think right now we have a set of twins but they're both virtual and I'm not a hundred percent sure and if they are but Mm -hmm. little cool fact about me my very best friends growing up from kindergarten on were twins and then when our middle or our elementary school joined with another elementary school to make our junior high school my other Mm -hmm. set of friends were twins so they were five of us and I was the only one that wasn't a twin Wow. So you were in the minority. And my father-in-law's a twin. That's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. So you know what I'm saying when I talk about like this unspoken understanding that they have Mm -hmm. for each other. And it's almost like their protective instincts are heightened. Yeah, for for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the same was true of Danette and Jeanette. They were always together usually just hanging out, watching television, or sitting on the front porch. Their younger sister, Shantae, referred to them as homebodies, which I feel that is yeah. me. So, yeah, I totally get it. Most thought of the twins as these quiet girls who always had a smile for everyone who passed by, and they would see them as they were walking by on the sidewalk in front of their porch. And their cousin, Yolanda Curry, had reported to one source that They were there so often that she could just see them there, smiles beaming. And because she saw them there so often that she could just close her eyes and picture them sitting there. And while both of them were friendly and cheerful with everyone, Danette was still very protective over Jeanette, who had a more passive nature. And I think that's pretty common, too, that, like, with twins, one will have, like, a more dominant personality. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was true of your friends, too. Yeah, it was. And, like, um, I can just, like, I can picture all of their conversations together. And that is how it was. They're so protective over each other. And then, like you said, one um, was always a little more slightly, like, dominating and one a little more passive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Danette and Jeanette were both good girls, and they had only really ever gotten into trouble one time, and for good reason. So I'm going to tell you about that. Just a few months before their disappearance in 1989, 
the 15-year-old twins had been involved in a scuffle at a school bus stop. So Danette had been struggling at school more than her twin sister, and as a result, she was held back a grade, and she actually attended a different local school than her sister so that she could get that added academic support. So Danette's bus stop was one block away from where her twin sister, Jeanette, would wait for the bus. And remember, Jeanette is the more passive one. Okay. But Jeanette was being bullied by some of the other students at her bus stop. And because she was more passive and wanted to avoid conflict, she hadn't confronted the bully. So, like, the bullying was continuing. Okay. But when Danette heard about what was going on, she went straight to Jeanette's bus stop one morning and confronted the girl for her sister. Again, like, that's why I said for a good reason. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm not condoning fights. I'm condoning protecting your your sister or your brother. Exactly. Exactly. But the kids from the surrounding bus stops actually heard the ruckus and they went to see what was happening. And then an Augusta police officer happened to drive by, see this crowd, and stop to break up the fight. There wasn't any, you would think like, oh no, what's going to happen? You know, a cop stopping. There wasn't any other punishment for Danette or for the bully. They were, you know, just kind of got like a warning from the cop. But the bully Mm -hmm. was a girl related to the principal of the school that Jeanette still attended, Lucy Laney High School. And I want you to remember that detail. Well, obviously, then she's definitely not going to get in trouble. Right. Related to the, I mean, you'd like to think that there wouldn't be, you know, favoritism, but I'm sure there is. Mm -hmm. Other than that one incident, life went fairly smoothly for the twins. Their mom struggled a bit financially, but then again, how could you not with 10 children? Yeah, (laughs) unless you're Bill Gates. Yeah, I can't imagine. We've talked about this before, Maggie, but like the cost of one child is outrageous. So I can't imagine that times 10. I'd be like, everybody's wearing hand-me-downs. Everybody. And like food. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. My little sleuth hound wanted McDonald's for her McDonald's for her birthday, right? So we bought McDonald's for seven people it was fifty dollars mcdonald's <laughs> and i was like how do people do it like how do these big fans i don't know i don't know at least she wasn't like i want balloons yeah that would have been a lot more. <laughs> but despite the money troubles that family had so much love in it maggie mom brothers sisters aunts uncles grandparents cousins community they just all rallied around one another and there's really only one person the girls had a bit of a strained relationship with their father but i'll get into that in a minute okay the twins mother her name was mary sturgis but everyone called her miss louise so i'm gonna call her louise okay They had just moved their family from their old neighborhood of Bethlehem, which is around 12th Street in Augusta, to an area called Jennings Homes. And this move meant being about 
three miles away from their old community, which was made up of their family and friends and neighbors. And it also meant starting a new school the next school year. So they actually were able until then to like spend their final remaining months of the 1989-1990 school year to finish it out in their old school. So that was good. Yeah. But unfortunately, because they had already moved, that now meant having to take public transportation to school rather than the school bus because they're not living in the district. Right. And that can be a little more dangerous. A lot more dangerous than taking the school bus. Oh, yeah. Because you've got adults riding Mm -hmm. the bus. Um, And it was also more expensive. Because now they're having to pay. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, for transportation. But the girls went back to their old neighborhood quite often to visit. Usually they walked there, but... You know, for school, they're thinking, well, if we could ride the the public bus, that would be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. The day of the incident, March 18th, 1990, so 31 years ago this past week, was a Sunday. Louise Sturgis had taken her children to church like normal. And after the sermon, the pastor had given Louise money for her family to have a nice lunch that day. Which, I know, super sweet. The twins had actually walked to Church's Chicken to pick up the meal, and they brought it home. And I've never been to Church's Chicken, but I am a huge fan of fried chicken. So Me too. I'm sure it's delicious. Louise remembers it distinctly because Danette and Jeanette mentioned when they got back being worried because they said they noticed a white van looked like it had been following them. Mm. I know. Which, you know, that would freak me out if my little sleuth hound was like, um, I think there was a car following me. But yeah, Louise, but you're never out, leaving again. Right. Yeah. You're staying right here. Like, that's it. Maybe on a leash. Like, yeah. That's me. But Louise had looked outside and she didn't see any van. So, you know, combine that with the fact that they'd made it home without any incident. So then she started thinking, well, maybe they were just being paranoid. Us. You know. Yeah, exactly. You told a story about when uh, two guys were running in your neighborhood and you thought yes. they were running to you. <laughs> you were like, oh no. Yeah, and I was like quickly walking to the door so it didn't look like I was running away. <laughs> and like in this case, and we say it all the time, it's it's really hard because we do kind of justify and rationalize. And I don't want to say... You know, that she thought it was just paranoia because, you know, as we were just saying, we feel it too. It's very real. Mm -hmm. Like, I bet when I'm driving to work in the mornings, I look in my back seat while I'm driving at least five times. Yeah, I have the. No one's back there. Yeah, I have the middle, like, because we have an SUV. So I have, like, the middle seats laid down so I can see into the trunk. When I'm by myself. No. Just to make sure no one's hiding back there. Yeah. And um, just the other morning, I was leaving for school. And I walked outside and the air conditioner unit kicked on. And I almost (laughs) threw my pants. (laughs) I bet. I mean, I jumped so high. So I don't want to say just paranoia because it's real. 
<laughs> Louise and I know Louise and the girls had been talking recently about the added cost of having to take that public transportation to school the coming week. Because remember, you know, she's struggling financially because she's got the 10 kids to take care of. Mm-hmm. And so Louise had suggested that the girls see if maybe their godfather might be willing to help them out because he had done so before. So Danette changed out of her clothes from church into a white Mickey Mouse t-shirt, love Disney, white jeans and black sneakers. Oh, this is a very late 80s, early 90s outfit right here. Totally, totally. And Jeanette, she kept on the white turtleneck, blue pullover and beige skirt and tights that she had on at church. But she just slipped into some more comfortable shoes. So she just put some sneakers on with her outfit. And around 3 p.m., the twins set off walking together to their old neighborhood to visit their godfather, Ted, who lived on Forest Street. And their younger sister, Shantae Sturgis, she remembers begging them to let her tag along, but they said no. And I think that's just one of those, like, you know, you always want to go with, like, an older sibling. And they're like, Mm -hmm. no. Oh, no. (laughs) Never. Their godfather was at home. And he gave the girls $20, which was enough money for their transportation for the whole next week to school for both of them. Well, that was good. So that was super nice. Yeah, super nice of him. And he gave them a little bit of extra money so that they could buy some treats and snacks. And I loved that little detail because I used to love my granny would give me like some pocket change and my friend Amy when she would come over on Sundays and she would take us to the grocery store and we could just buy like whatever candy we wanted with the money. Oh yeah. And I used to get so excited. Heck today I would get excited if I found a dollar and I could buy a chocolate bar when my students are having the world's best chocolate fundraiser. So (laughs) when the dance team did that, I would be like, I just kept a tally. Like I owe $5 to the dance team because I would just (laughs) eat a chocolate bar. I owe $3 to the dance team. (laughs) I paid it, though. I always paid it. Right. So I know that Danette and Jeanette had to have been happy about that change because, heck, I understand. Well, they visited with Ted, their godfather, for a little bit. And then they decided while they were in the area of their old neighborhood that they would also visit their cousin Juanita, who only lived a block away on Tin Cup Lane. Oh, that's a cute little name. I know. Tin Cup Lane. Um, so yeah, so this was like, you know, a good little visit back in their old neighborhood, saw their godfather, they went to go visit their cousin. And after spending, though, only a few short minutes with her, they decided to leave. And they didn't have a whole lot of time because their mom told them to be back before dark, which would have been around seven. And they still had that long walk back. Because remember, they're like three miles away. Oh, yeah. Which would take me a long time. Mm -hmm. because I'd probably have to take breaks (laughs) so there's that like you got to factor that in but when they were at their cousin's house they asked their aunt if Juanita could walk back with them but since that would then mean Juanita walking back home by herself in the dark her mom had said no understandably completely understandable from there so now they visited Ted They visited Juanita, their cousin. They wanted Juanita to walk with them back home. 
but Juanita's mom said no. From there, Jeanette and Jeanette went to visit their older sister on Paquette Avenue, and their sister had just had a baby. Aww. So again, good family visit. But yet again, the twins only stayed a short time, around 15 minutes, before also asking their sister if she would accompany them back home. But with a newborn, that would have been a huge hassle. So she also declined. So do we know why they moved away from all their family and friends? I did not read anywhere the reason why they moved okay. the three miles away. So I don't know if it was like more affordable, if mm. if it was like if um, their mom had begun a new relationship or something. I'm not sure. Gotcha. But it's that second request of their older sister in hindsight, that worries the family. Yeah, it seems like they're scared to walk back home alone. Exactly, Maggie. And that's what's in their family's head. So they're thinking, well, it probably wouldn't have been out of the ordinary to see if their cousin wanted to come back with them because they stayed the night at each other's houses all the time. But then to ask two separate people, and one of whom, their older sister with the newborn, who they knew couldn't stay. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, why why had they asked two different people to walk with them? Was there something that they were afraid of? It could, could have been the really, van. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Could there have really been a white van that was following them? And, I mean, remember, they made this walk plenty of times before to visit old friends. And on none of those occasions had they asked multiple people to walk back with them. So, there's something that's worrying them. Knowing now, obviously, they've gotten two no's, that they were walking back by themselves, they made one last stop around 4.30 p.m. at a local corner gas station, the Pumpin' Shop, near the corner of 12th Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Well, I would have to stop and get me a water because I would be dead walking three miles back to the house. (laughs) Yeah, like, gotta hydrate before we go. Gloria, the cashier at the pump and shop, was actually familiar with the twins because obviously they had grown up in that neighborhood, right? And Mm -hmm. so they had come into this corner shop before. So she sold them some chips and soda. And they obviously, they were like, let's go ahead and use this snack money from Ted. Yeah, let's not waste this. Yeah. (laughs) But just as quickly as she had seen them at the register, she had turned her head for a minute. And then they were gone. And Gloria was the last person that we know of to have seen Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. They were gone as in like they just like walked on down the street or gone like kidnapped. She didn't see which direction they had gone. And we haven't seen them since. Wow. So when the girls hadn't returned home by dark, their mom obviously knew something was wrong. So she immediately called the police. Good for her. Yes, immediately. But 
she was told by the Richmond County Sheriff's Office that she would have to wait 24 hours before filing a missing persons report for the twins. And why is that like a common thing? I don't think it is anymore, but I think it used to be. And I have no idea other than like this automatic assumption that we've talked about before. That they ran away or something. Yeah. Yep. That's so stupid. The first 24 hours is like crucial crucial golden hours but now they've passed and i can only imagine maggie i bet each minute of each one of those hours that that mom waited was nothing short of pure agony yeah i cannot imagine in the meantime though maggie their mom louise and their 12 year old sister shantae went out walking themselves which is exactly what i would have done looking Mm -hmm. for danette and Jeanette. And some of the areas that the girls walked through were known for high crime rates. But Louise hadn't really worried about it as much with the twins because, number one, it wasn't that far. Right? I know I joke about three miles and, you know, I'd have to take breaks. But three miles is a doable walk. It's not yeah. like they were 20 miles away. Number two, they knew the area. And most of the people in it. And number yeah. three, they, they had each other. So they would never be traveling alone. Yeah, I think like as a parent, like if I were a parent in this situation, like, and my kids, they're fifth, are they 15 or almost okay. 15? You said? Yeah, 15. So I think I would been would have been okay with my 15-year-old walking three miles. Like you said, I mean, it's not that far. Like, it doesn't take that long to walk three miles. Plus... You know people along the way, so it's almost mm-hmm. like you are watching them as they walk, even when you're really not, because you could probably call people all along the, like, route they would be taking. Right. And like you said, they're not alone. They're together. Right. right. But I do feel like for the girls and for so many girls out there, there is a false sense of security in numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. Obviously, walking with someone is far better than walking alone. And it is harder to harm or abduct multiple people than it is a single person. But it doesn't mean that you're safe. Like, it doesn't mean it could never happen. Right, because there could be plenty of scenarios in which two or more people could get overpowered. Mm-hmm. And those were the thoughts in Louise's head, obviously, as she's walking the path her girls would have taken. Shantae, the younger sister, remembers looking in the brush along the roadside looking for any sign of her sisters, but they returned home brokenhearted and empty-handed. The next day, so remember Louise is told, wait 24 hours. The next day, Monday, March 19th, Louise called again and filed the report. So like, awesome mom, she's like, Mm -hmm. calling first thing, let's get this filed. But just like the day before, again, law enforcement didn't seem to take the case as seriously as they should have. And it wasn't until later that week that an officer finally knocked on their door and spoke face to face with Louise about her daughters. But he looked right at Louise Maggie and said offhandedly, oh, they'd probably just ran away. If I was her, I would have been at the police station every day until somebody talked to me about my kids. 
and I probably would have slapped. Yeah, I was going to say, I probably would have slapped that police officer. A week and a half later, on April 2nd, it was the twins' 16th birthday. And, you know, that's a huge Mm -hmm. birthday for kids. But it passed without a word of their whereabouts. Three days later, the Masters Golf Tournament began. And it seemed as though the case of the missing Milbrook twins had been all but forgotten as police turned their attention to the influx of visitors to Augusta. And I'm not saying that, you know, police presence isn't needed for such a high profile event. I mean, 50,000 extra people is a huge amount. And we know, obviously, that with the number of people increasing, so too does something else increase the potential for crime right? We know this. Like, I understand why police attention went elsewhere, but for that family, your babies are the most important thing. And I think it would be impossible to fathom, like, why the search for your daughters would take a back burner. Yeah. Like I said, I would be at the police station every day. Mm-hmm. And so while I'm not willing to blame the police for their presence at the golf tournament. Like I get that. What I will blame the department for is that once the tournament was over, they still didn't give full attention to the case. So this family, Maggie, was continuously denied coverage for the case. They were denied respect and denied justice. And I know those are harsh words coming from me because I always try to play the devil's advocate and to give benefit of the doubt. But let me tell you why I feel so strongly. The officer, Detective Jim Ship, who had come to their home, you know, and had gained their trust, even though he's the one who said, well, they probably just ran away, right? Mm-hmm. They're trusting this officer to find the twins, you know, that they're going to do everything in their power to find Danette and Jeanette and bring them home. And I feel like any, I feel like we're just, that should be natural for us. You want Mm -hmm. to trust the police. And so you want to say, like, if you have a problem and it requires police attention, that they are going to give it their full attention and, you know, put everything into helping you. But sometimes that doesn't necessarily happen. I know. And for this family, that trust was betrayed. The detective who spoke with Louise handed the case off to a juvenile investigator who proceeded to bungle the whole investigation. That investigator, who's now deceased, heard about the two 15-year-old girls, and despite any evidence to suggest his belief to be true, decided that they had just run away from home after getting $20 from Ted, as if $20 could get you anywhere. Yeah, where are you going to go on 20 bucks? That was just enough for them to go back and forth to school for a week. I know. Like, that's not a substantial amount of money. Right, you're not going to go start a new life with $20. Yeah. This investigator didn't go talk to people in the neighborhood, didn't interview their cousin Juanita, didn't ask to speak to Danette and Jeanette's dad, who actually lived close to where the girls were when they disappeared, didn't speak with their older sister, whom the girls visited, 
and didn't canvas the area. So what did he do? He only spoke with Ted to find out that he had given the girls a little bit of money and Gloria at the gas station. Oh, and one other person. He also spoke with the principal from the twin school, Lucy Laney High School. Why? Well, I don't know why. I guess to find out about their character, where they might have gone. Do you remember that tidbit of info I asked you to remember at the beginning? Yeah, he's going to say that they're like horrible girls because they got into a fight with his niece or whoever that girl was. Yep, this is the same principal whose relative Danette had fought with at the bus stop. So after this shoddy investigation, this investigator ruled Danette and Jeanette as runaways. And he even speculated that one of the twins had gotten pregnant and that they both decided to run away. A statement with absolutely no merit. They didn't even have boyfriends at the time. <laughs> Is that not ridiculous? Yes. I like, I mean, nothing that you have told me in this whole story did I ever for a second think, I bet they ran away. Right. I know nothing. And this juvenile investigator who was now in charge was so careless, Maggie, that even some of the details in his report are incorrect. He has the twins' last name as Mill Brooks instead of Millbrook. He had Jeanette's middle name written down as Latressa instead of Latrice. He thought that they were born on April 7th, 1974 instead of April 2nd, 1974. And he reported that the twins had visited Ted on Florence Street instead of Forest Street, where they really had been. So, I mean, all kinds of mistakes. Yeah. This is why. Oh, go ahead. Like, this is your job, investigator. Like, your job is to investigate this case. Like, our job is to teach. So, there are certain standards you have to meet to perform your job well and I don't think that he did that no he did not and that is why I say law enforcement failed the family Mm -hmm. the twins family though then reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children who did help create flyers for the family so that was good Mm -hmm. but the story of the disappearance of two 15-year-old black teenagers who were already deemed runaways by the police was not a quote-unquote newsworthy story in the eyes of all of the other agencies to whom Louise had reached out. So the media also failed the family, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yet another failure from law enforcement happened a year later when on April 8th, 1991, an officer came to visit the family and told them that the investigation for Danette and Jeanette would have to end. Yeah. Like, we're just, we're, it just needs to stop. We can't well, they, look. You're being cut anymore. off. Yeah. His logic, Maggie, was that the girls had just turned 17. And under Georgia law, if they're 17, even if they are found, if they don't want to return home, they can't be forced to. So he was like, so there's no use continuing the investigation for them. So it was but, called off. 
but that doesn't make sense to me. Like, I mean, that's fine that that's their law, that they don't, like, they can't make them return home. But, like, you don't even know if they're alive to return home. Right. And we have no proof that they actually ran away versus being abducted. Right. But the biggest failure, as if those aren't big failures, the biggest failure came two years after that. When in 1993, and this is what I mentioned in the introduction, Louise had reached out again to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, only to be told that her daughter's cases had been closed because they had been found and were in foster care. So this in the intro was what, like, like kind of stopped me in my tracks. Because mm-hmm. first of all, if they had been found and were now in foster care, would you not have had to have contacted the parent yes. to place a child in foster care? Yes, you would. And so, yeah, that's what she's thinking. She's like, how can that be true? Because I've never been told about it. And why haven't I seen them? Right, exactly. Like, how could this case be closed and I not know about it as their mom? Exactly. Well, it turns out, Maggie, all of those details were wrong. And what's worse, listen to this. The case could have only been closed with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children by the law enforcement agency (gasps) in charge, the Richmond County Sheriff's Office. Yep. So she's told that they're found and that their case is closed. Yes. And the case was closed at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children by her local police department who has refused to help her find her children. Yeah. So this means this investigator, though, who came to her house said, we're closing it because... Like they're 17. Yeah, can't be forced to come home. But they're closing it with NCME by saying that the girls have been found, which is a completely different story Mm -hmm. about why the investigation is ending. And the juvenile investigator in charge of the case actually told that detective who went to speak originally with the family that he had seen the twins, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook, with his own eyes. A claim that we now know was wrong. But again, we can no longer ask that investigator because he's now deceased. So I just feel so bad for this family. Yeah, nothing is going good for them. And more lies followed, Maggie. For example... The family was even told that the girls had been removed from their mother's home, put into foster care, and then adopted. But again, Uh, something their mom obviously knows is a lie because she's like, the girls weren't taken from my home. Yeah, they literally disappeared. Yep. Now, there was a close relative who had children who were put into foster care, but it wasn't Louise, and those children were not Danette and Jeanette. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it's like lies all over the place, confusion all over the place. In 2013, so fairly recently, it looked like the family's luck was finally turning around. And something that was 23 years past due might actually happen. 
an honest and thorough investigation into what happened to Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. Okay. Hopefully. Better late than never. That's right. A new sheriff was in office, Richard Roundtree, and he decided to reopen the case. He even said in a media release, quote, we think a terrible injustice has been done for the last 20 years. For some unknown reason, they were removed from the system, but there's no report indicating why they were removed. So for the last 20 years, they've not been in the system, end quote. And their sister Shantae stated to CBS News 12, quote, so from 1991 to 2013, nobody was looking for my sisters. Nobody. Not the sheriff. Nobody. Period. Nobody but my family. End quote. Wow. That's so sad to think. You know, you think everybody out there is looking. Mm-hmm. And then to find out that nobody was because the case has been closed for who knows how long. Yeah, and think how many, like, maybe potential leads they've missed out on, potential mm-hmm. clues that were overlooked. Like, it's sad. You can't get that back. No, you can't. And in 2013, at least the family allowed themselves to get their hopes up. Mm-hmm. Only to be again let down. And nothing developed in the years after the case was reopened. One problem they faced was that the original case file had disappeared. Of course it did. Of course. In 1996, the Richmond County Sheriff's Office and the Augusta Police Departments merged. And somewhere in the merger, the case file had disappeared. So some people speculate that it could have been shredded after the case was closed. Did they do that? I don't know. That's one speculation. So I don't, I mean, I guess you would get rid of paperwork if a case is closed, right? I don't know. Well, you would at least need to make it like a digital thing. I would think, but we're still talking in 1996. True. Save it to a floppy Uh, disk. Right, there you go. There you go. Floppy disks. Other than... That there is some speculation that maybe it was destroyed. The, their offices were flooded in the 90s. So there's also some speculation that maybe the file was destroyed in that. So this is reopened in 2013. It wasn't until 2017 that law enforcement finally collected samples of familial DNA to aid in their new investigation. So that's a long time. Yeah. And it was then, Maggie, when they're collecting this familial DNA, that some interesting information came to light. The Mm. twin's father, remember I mentioned he had never been interviewed in the first investigation? Yeah, and they didn't really have a very good relationship, right? They did not. And he did something that's pretty suspicious. He refused to give a DNA sample. And he even forbid his other biological daughter, so Jeanette and Jeanette's sister, to give a sample. That's weird. Yeah, I don't want you to do this. But she did anyway. That's exactly what I would have done. I'd have been like, "Um, no, screw you. Right. Well, plus we're the rule followers. Yeah. 
I'll oh, be yeah. like, the police asked me. Sorry. Yes. Gotta go. Yeah. They trump you. Yeah. But he even urged that daughter to change her phone number and said if the police came looking for him to say that he had died. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that does not look. That doesn't look good. Do we find out why he said this? Well, there's a theory, but okay. I'll get to it in a second. According to Shantae, their father also indicated to their mother, Louise, that she shouldn't look for the girls. That's weird. And that's, yeah, that's super sketchy to me. Now, here's my theory. It could, all these weird comments, sketchy things have nothing to do with the dis- disappearance of his twin daughters and have everything to do with his involvement in other crimes. Okay, that was what I was wondering. Like, maybe he just didn't want to get so involved because he has, like, you know, like a record or he's involved in criminal activity. Yes, and that is correct. He did have a record. So... Could he have just been more interested in self-preservation than in finding his daughters? Which would make him an awful parent, but not a kidnapper or a murderer. But still not a good person. Right. Or did he have something to do with their disappearance? Now, before I get your input, Maggie, I want to tell you about two individuals with whom the girl's father had a relationship who could be linked to this case. Okay. The first individual is Joseph Patrick Washington. And per my theory, before I say anything else, can you guess anything about him, Maggie, just based on his name? He's a serial killer. Yep. Serial killer. He's got three names. Three names. You're a serial killer. Like, not always, but there's a high likelihood. (laughs) So, While we cannot now question Washington either because he died in prison in 1999. See, and that's another thing that agitates me about the fact this case took so long. Half the people that you probably could have interviewed or you should have been interviewing are probably dead by now. Yeah, and now we can't. So it's all speculation. But this Joseph Patrick Washington in the early 90s was actively kidnapping sexually assaulting and murdering black women in and around augusta wow and here we have two young black women in the 90s in 1995 he was found guilty in several cases and sentenced to 17 consecutive life sentences wow and all of that before he was set to face trial for two murders for which he was going to face the death penalty and all of that before he died in prison. So Washington is linked in a way to Danette and Jeanette's father through their father's life of drugs and crime. And we don't know if Washington owned a white van, but we do know, according to an article by WRDW News, that he did own not only multiple weapons and tools for this crime spree, but that he did own several different vehicles that he used to enact his crimes. So could Danette and Jeanette have been two more of his victims? Potentially. Well, I'm going to save my comments until the end, because is there another theory coming? There is. Okay, I'll wait till the end then. Another associate of the twins' father 
has offered a different potential lead to solving the case. A few years after Danette and Jeanette disappeared, their father was arrested for covering up a crime, for covering up a murder committed by an acquaintance by the name of Ernest Vaughns. Listen, I've already told Anthony, like, there are some things that if, like, we're married, and I love him more than anything, there are some things that if he did, like, I'm going I'm to turn you in. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm not helping you hide anybody if you murder somebody. Yeah. Now, and he's the love of my life. Now, I definitely would not do that for an acquaintance. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't either. Nope. Sorry, don't commit a murder around me. Yeah, because I'm calling 911. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was this Ernest Vaughn's claim that the twins' father knows something more about what happened to his twins than he's telling. Vaughn says that at the time of the girls' disappearance, their father was actually allowing drug deals to go down in his home. And he alleges that Danette and Jeanette were actually at their father's home leading up to their disappearance. Vaughn's himself was there, and even though he was only 12 at the time, he actually admitted to selling drugs at that age, which I cannot imagine. My sleuthhound will be 12 next Friday. Yeah, I teach 12-year-olds, and I cannot imagine that. I mean... I don't, I wouldn't even want to hear like a curse word come out of her mouth. Oh, but he admitted that he was selling drugs at that age and he was using the twins father's home as his home base for dealing. Now, before we go on into this theory anymore, did the girls visit their father on their walks to their old neighborhood? Like, would this have been a normal thing for them to do? Or was this just like completely out of the norm? I don't think that they normally did okay. because one of the reasons why police aren't as positive about Vons's testimony is because his description of the twins was a little bit off, which tells me if he was over at their father's house quite often and his descriptions of the twins is slightly off, then he, he wasn't familiar with them. Yeah. So, Vons is there. He's only 12 at the time. But he swears that he saw something happen there that has something to do with the twins' disappearance. Okay. He told Laura Coates of the Oxygen documentary. So, the Oxygen Channel has done a documentary about the Mm. Millbrook twins. He told Laura Coates that both of the 15-year-old twins were drinking and smoking marijuana and that some of the men in the home, and there were roughly nine men present, had taken advantage of one of the twin girls. Now, that just does not sound anything like the girls that you described in the beginning of this. Yeah, it does not. The drinking and the smoking does not to me either. But this is what he says happened. And he says that when one of those men took advantage of one of the twins, the other twin, whom Vaughn's called the more outspoken twin, which we know there was, Mm -hmm. took up for her sister, which resulted in one of the men hitting that outspoken twin. And when they hit her, she fell back and she busted her head open on a table 
And at that moment, Vaughn's was sent outside with some of the other men who were present, and they were told not to come back inside until, quote, things got quiet, end quote. And Vaughn's thinks that it was because of that incident that the twins were killed. Wow. And he believes because of the people who were involved, like the people he remembers seeing at the house, and I don't know why he thought this, but he thinks that because of the people who were there, that the bodies were dumped in the brickyard pond. So Vaughn's actually tells all of this information to Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove, who were producers of the podcast, The Fall Line. And they were like, uh, let's take this information to the police because they need to use it as part of their investigation. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, though, the police did not follow up on the information that Vaughn's provided. Why? Well, according to WRDW News, Detective Roundtree and the Richmond County Sheriff's Office did not follow up on the search of the Brickyard Pond area. Number one, because they said that the area was too large to, ha- to like not have a specific pinpointed location to search. And number two, they deemed Vaughn's not credible, even though some of the elements of his testimony could be corroborated. Well, I mean, in the case last week that we covered last week, the person, like the suspect sent police on several wild goose chases and the police followed uh-huh. through with every single one of those looking yep. for the body. So I do not understand how you can say he's naming a specific location, how you can yep. say it's too large to search. Too big. Yep. Oh my God. And that he can't be trusted. Oh even though parts could be corroborated. So he gave recognized street names of those who he remembers being present. And according to Sheriff Richard Roundtree, he said the following to Coates and Reynolds for the Oxygen documentary, quote, these are names when I started my career early on and I worked street level in the narcotics unit. And these were common names of individuals we arrested on several occasions. What blows me away is these are names you can't make up, end quote. Okay. So, like, he knows that that's true. So then why are we saying, oh, no, we can't, we can't do anything with his theory because he could possibly maybe be a liar? There's two reasons. One of them I told you already. Law enforcement said that he gave a few inconsistent details about the twins. Okay, first of all, this happened in, like, 1990. Yep. So you're going to forget things. And he's not recalling it, yeah, until 2013. So 20 some years later. Yeah. But here's the second reason. They said, well, one of the men that Vaughn said was there, Vaughn's recalled seeing him in a wheelchair, but that individual wasn't in a wheelchair, which he was in a wheelchair due to paralysis from a police shooting. But that shooting didn't happen until 1992, and he's recalling a memory from 1990. So, obviously, he's describing a different crime instead. I mean, he possibly could be. Or, like we said, it's been a long, long time. So, maybe he's just getting a few minute details confused. 
that's what I'm thinking because I feel like that's a simple mistake to make because it, if the man in question had been in a wheelchair for a long time, like I feel like Vaughn's could have remembered him being there, but he just kind of projected the wheelchair into the memory because if it's a common part of like every other memory that he has of that mm-hmm. individual, you know what I mean? It would be yeah. like if Billy Bob had an eye patch from 1991 on, you know, and you've known him for 30 years and you always picture Billy Bob with an eye patch. And then somebody mentioned something in 1990 and in your mind, you picture him with an eye patch. Right. Exactly. And I feel like this is the same thing. And I mean, I think what you just said too, he's recalling an event that happened over 20 years earlier. So some details could be wrong. Absolutely. But I don't think that that should equate to, we can't believe anything that he says. Let's just not investigate. And what about the girl's father? Danette and Jeanette's mother, Louise, told WRDW News, quote, I don't think he harmed them, but I don't think he helped either, end quote. She also reported that her ex, when she had told him that the girls were missing, had said something about how she shouldn't be looking for them, quote, because they're with some man, end quote. (laughs) But who that man is... And why their father made such a comment is, again, not something for which police can follow up on. Because we've waited so long, we can't follow up on that, nor can we follow up on whether or not Vaughn's story, if any part of it is correct, because the girl's father is in a nursing home and suffers from dementia. Which is really sad for him. But super sad for this investigation that we have waited so long that now crucial people in this case are dead or cannot give accurate testimonies. Yep. And what I can tell you is this before I get your thoughts. According to statistics provided by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, it is extremely rare for multiple siblings to be abducted together by a stranger. But it's not impossible. And it has happened before. Between 1975 and 2014, there were actually three incidences of siblings who were kidnapped by non-family members. So, I mean, I know that's not many. Three and, you know... 40 years, basically. But could the Millbrook sisters be another to add to that list? Because we know how protective they were of one another. So normally it would be hard to abduct two people at once, but one twin would have never left the other one. So we have the father who acts sketchy. We know that statistically speaking, it's extremely rare for multiple siblings to disappear with a stranger together. But we also have the serial killer and we have Vaughn's story. So what are your thoughts? I am more inclined to believe the serial killer theory just because they fit the description of like the women he was abducting 
and killing at that time. But then I do think about what you said, like statistically, not as many pairs are, you know, kidnapped as the, as individuals. I don't know that I really believe parts of Vaughn's story about, you know, them being high and things mm-hmm. like that. Like that just doesn't sound like who they are to me. But I do think that the girls were aware someone was like following them. Yeah. I just don't know if I know who that would have been. I feel like if it had been their dad, I think they would have said something though. Right. Yeah. They would have been like, dad is over here. Yeah. Dad's acting really weird. Like, but the fact that their dad said they're with some man and he knows our three named serial killer, mm-hmm. it makes me feel like you're right that that could be the man who they were with. Mm-hmm. That's what but I'm I don't know why the dad would want to cover that up and would be like willing to let that happen. Well, unless it's kind of like a self preservation thing, like maybe that guy had something on him and he just doesn't want to like come out and say that's the dude because he doesn't want to get in trouble for whatever that guy may have on him it could be in 2019 the oxygen channel ran a special documentary about the case the one that i mentioned earlier during that investigation former federal prosecutor laura Coates spoke off camera with detective ship and in that interview and i have to say she alleges because we don't have it on camera she alleges that he admitted to calling the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to close the case and that he falsely reported that the girls had been found because he was sure the girls were runaways. Okay, is that not illegal, though? Like, he could could he not lose his job? I, I feel like it should be. Yeah. But whether he actually called or someone else did to close the case remains a mystery. What isn't a mystery, but is instead a clear and present reality, is that it would be very hard to have abducted two individuals in daylight in a busy area without someone seeing something. Another reality is that this investigation needs you, sleuthhounds, share their story. Don't let their names be forgotten. And whatever you do, don't lose sight of the knowledge that we can make a difference by telling these stories and that we must, under all circumstances, keep faith that someday we will get answers. Every time the glimmering offer of hope has been held out to the Millbrook Sturgis family or they've cautiously allowed themselves to believe in miracles, That hope has been moved one step backward, just out of reach again. For Danette and Jeanette's younger sister, Shantae, this has been a lifelong journey of advocacy, of exposure, and of the belief that perhaps one additional phone call or that one additional podcast willing to share their story could be the very one that leads to answers. Consider joining Shantae's Facebook group called Missing Danette and Jeanette Millbrook or contacting the Richmond County Sheriff's Office to demand answers. 
Let's not let Louise, Shantae, and other family members continue to feel so isolated in the dark, nor to think that their cries for justice are falling on deaf ears. Let's instead help to turn on a light. Anyone with information about Danette and Jeanette Millbrook is asked to call the Richmond County Sheriff's Office at 706-821-1096 or to remain anonymous, call 866-939-5050 or you may call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children who have also reopened the case at 800 843-5678. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you next week. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply